What's so special about Christianity? What gives the right for one man claiming to be God to ask the entire world to forsake their own cultural, political, or even religious identities and exchange it for his? It's a valid question that I think we should explore. It's important to help repair the trust that Christianity has often historically impaired or altogether broken. But I think that even more important than this is understanding the legacy Jesus Christ actually intended to leave behind. Please be aware that content in this episode may be upsetting for some people. Listener discretion is advised. The religion question. Whose religion is superior? While I don't think most people would ask that question out loud, this is an underlying question in the theology of every major religion. If you don't conform to my religion, your eternal status is in danger of damnation forever. A statement like this at least sounds accurate or familiar to every major religion. However, if Christianity is a religion of self-proclaimed sinners asking a Jewish king to make them Christians, is religion the legacy of Jesus? Or is it actually salvation? Regardless of the religion, conflating religion for salvation or soteriology is dangerous in and of itself, because automatically the religion's efficacy becomes limited by and to its own denominations. The moment that you say that salvation is in the religion itself, you have just limited the capacity for your religion to go everywhere into all the world, because all the world was not born into your religion, especially considering your religion did not exist for the entirety of the earth's existence. Nowhere in scripture or in historical document does the word Christianity ever leave Jesus' mouth, mainly because Christianity was founded by Peter after Jesus' ascent. But I'll tell you what word Jesus did say to take into all the world, the church. For Jesus, anyway, religion was never the point. The church was. So at least for Christians, seeking a status of most superior religion is rather futile. Hence, this is why I always say on this podcast, Christianity does not save. Christ saves. The Historical Jesus And if religion was not the point for Jesus, but rather the church, how does that fact color the historical Jesus? The historical Jesus is basically the depiction of Jesus as dictated by historical artifacts and documents preserved in the archaeological record and or such evidence, completely excluding any scriptural accounts, whether they are canonical or not. Although it is fair to argue that the historical Jesus project came with a bias against religion and scripture in the first place, the ability to understand and read about Jesus in historical documents that may be hostile to Christianity is probably one of the most significant things any Christian can do. One of the things it teaches you to do is to ground your own faith more securely in Jesus. But the most important thing is being able to understand that there was a point in time in which Jesus was exposed to a world that had no concept or understanding of Jewish history or scripture. If they had no experience with the Hebrew God in a cultural, linguistic, or historical way, then how were they just as impacted by him in their own time, quite possibly as much as Christians today have been impacted by Jesus? This is the same Jesus who left behind a legacy that outlasted ten Roman Caesars of persecution and then some. I think the only way for Jesus to have an impact on a world that had no experience with him or his God and leave an impression that powerful for that long 
was not through some religious endeavor isolated to one or several organizations, but rather a social project, a global social project that was led by and ultimately invited into the Holy Spirit. What social project are you talking about, Howard? I'm talking about the church. It's the church, loves. The church, when filled with and led by the Spirit of God, becomes this ever-expansive social movement in the earth, inviting diverse languages, ethnicities, generations, and populations of the world to participate in the kingdom of God, not just as mere Christians, but as believers. I think it is wonderful if someone like Peter or Timothy found Jesus by way of Christianity. That's beautiful. But if they come to know the same Jesus in Catholicism, in Judaism, in Islam, or even without a religion present, to God be the glory. The Impassable God All the way back in the first season of Anti, we talked about the impassable nature of God. Not impossible. Impassable. In both layman and scholastic fields, there is this ongoing argument about God and His nature. Some in both circles believe very strongly that God is impassable, while others take the passivalist view. Impassivalists believe God cannot experience suffering or passion, passion here literally meaning pain. Generally, strong impassivalists denounce the notion of a passable God. Passibilists, on the other hand, view God as having both an impassable nature and a passable experience. This means God is impassable, but He is freely and voluntarily capable of passable actions. It does intrigue me that there are many people that think that God must be either one or the other, not both. But avoiding complicated or messy answers is one of the Antichrist's prime political assignments— By reducing God to more simplistic ideas, we inevitably create and worship an idol better suited to our insecurities, one that we can more easily control and manipulate. Such a relationship is not that much different of that of the ancient Grecian gods. It was the people's ability to manipulate these gods to their own wills that made them so popular. While I believe strong impassibilists are trying to protect God from contamination or from corruption from humans, I believe that humans are the ones who need protection, not God. A God that you must protect is an idol and not God at all. There are points on impassibility and passibility that I either do not agree with or believe there needs further amending. I define impassibility a little differently than most because I examine both the nature and the experience of God through God parameters. Omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, omnisapience, omnisovereignty, omniliberty, omnibenevolence, and omnijustice. The meaning of a nature or an experience does change when the being changes. If I mistreat a plant, it will wilt. If I mistreat an animal, he will feel. If I mistreat a person, she will know. Surely then being God does make a difference when we are talking about having a nature or having an experience. Whatever nature or experience that we can have, we have no right to explain God's within human parameters. It would be as silly as expecting a person or an animal to wilt when they are mistreated. Therefore, I cannot define God's impassibility the way I would define the impassibility of a distant, critical, or punitive parent. Even a plant can learn to ignore struggle or pain on its level if it adapts to its environment well enough. I cannot expect God's impassibility to look like that of an emotionally impaired humans. The fact is, God deals with pain and struggle way better than humans do, even the best of us. Human instinct is to avoid struggle and pain as much as possible. 
God instinct is to directly confront it. I therefore cannot in good conscience define divine impassibility as a God who is unable to suffer or be affected by pain because he does everything he can to avoid it. I have to say that God is divinely impassable because he directly confronts struggle and pain, overwhelming, overcoming, and being over-victorious over these two boundaries. If that is what divine impassibility is, then divine passibility is no longer a conflict or a threat to the nature of God. It is because God is so much greater than struggle and pain that he can perfectly and completely experience both. Therefore, I can call Jesus God without taking any humanity away from him. I can call God human without taking any deity away from him. I can call God a lamb without taking any lion away from him, or vice versa. I can call God the beginning without taking the end away from him. I can call God the true vine without taking the branch away from him. I can call God the carpenter without taking the cross away from him. I can even call God crucified without taking the resurrection away from him. For some reason, over the ages, humanity has developed this need to protect God from being fallible or capable of being defeated. But I don't think that says as much about God as much as it does about us. Our need to protect God's nature from anything evil or wicked doesn't do anything to God's nature at all. It simply reveals that we don't trust God as we might think. Because we don't trust God to be vulnerable and still save us. We don't trust God to show any sign of weakness and still save us. We don't really trust God to die and still save us. Because we do not really trust in God's ability to raise himself up after a crucifixion, after a vulnerability, after a show of weakness and save himself. It is not by chance that the primary jeer at Jesus' crucifixion was the apparent inability of him not being able to save himself. There at the foot of Jesus' cross was revealed the depths of human depravity. Not that humanity was too poor, obscene, or vain to save itself, but that humanity did not believe that God was capable of dying while still being resurrection life. There is a Christian fallacy, I believe, stems from the misunderstanding around the impassibility of God's nature. By telling ourselves the erroneous narrative that God is someone who needs to be protected from human sin or fallibility, we develop this bodyguard kind of mentality, where we think it is more important to keep people we disapprove of away from God rather than allow our God to reach them. Furthermore, if we correct the narrative we tell ourselves that God somehow needs to avoid sin or pain, we can learn that directly confronting sin and pain is something we should strive to do as well rather than act with impunity and self-preserving hostility against whatever or whomever we think threatens God. I say self-preserving because we actually attack others in the name of defending ourselves under the false pretense of defending God. This is not an excuse for Christian hostility, but rather an explanation as to what this kind of hatred is really rooted in and where it is coming from. It's easier to resist something that you understand better. That's why Muhammad Ali constantly watched videos of his opponents so that he could learn and understand more about their fighting style. I believe that by learning to define the impassibility of God through God parameters and not human ones, Christians can be able to correct their own sense of Christian hostility, if they have it, and also we can get a better handle of this next fallacy, which comes from a small yet dangerous misunderstanding. The Great Commission versus the Call to Witness These two are not the same thing. They are different. The Great Commission was a charge to graduated disciples, which had graduated to essentially apostles, to go and make more disciples by teaching what they had been trained and taught by Jesus. The general call to witness was a general charge to every believer, from layman to leadership, to spread the gospel and be a positive witness. 
This may seem like an ordinary misunderstanding, but I believe this partly explains the historical stain on Christian evangelism. It is important to note that the commission charge was given specifically to trained apostles, whereas the other was given to believers in general, whether they were spiritually trained or not. It is dangerous to confuse these two just as it is to conflate any trained service for one that doesn't require any proof of mastery or a license. Spiritual malpractice is a real thing, and it often happens when someone attempts to act outside of their spiritual scope of practice. The conflation of these two charges might explain the religious fallacy which purports or believes that the Great Commission was an order of conquest rather than a charge of discipleship by training and a life of consecration. The Christian conquest fallacy often leads directly to the Christian empire religious conspiracy. Even the Christian terrorist reign of the Spaniards in the 14 to 1500s genuinely believed that they were fully justified by Jesus in order to invade and massacre nations. Again, apostles are not just experienced. They are trained. There is a reason you are less inclined to get your hair cut by the razor of someone who has cut hair before versus someone who has a license. A surgeon with a license is much more trustworthy than a surgeon who has mere experience. A license is generally required for someone who can provide a service that is more likely to cause harm to the consumer. And you can absolutely cause spiritual harm if you don't know how to make other disciples or train them to be apostles. Leading someone to Christ and making someone an apostle are two completely different things. Jesus trained his disciples for at least three years, and it was to those eleven that he gave the Great Commission, not to the entire world or even to Christians, because at that time Peter had not yet founded the Christian church. It didn't even exist yet. The Commission's charge is for apostles or graduated disciples to go and make disciples all over the world so that my church may be able to flourish. Once they accepted their apostolic callings, Apostles Paul and Peter both made a general call to believers to lead other believers to Christ. I believe that Jesus wanted to grow and develop the church so that the disciples and the apostles could minister to the needs of a multifaceted, multicultural, and multireligious world. Stephen actually corrected the Christians when they were accused of prioritizing the needs of their own believers ahead of the Greeks who lived in the same region. There in Acts chapter 6, Stephen made it clear that the church is not the church because of who runs it. The church is the church because of who fills it. The outsiders, the misfits, the rejected. I don't believe that Jesus designed the church to force the world to bend to it. Just as Jesus became human for our sakes, bending to our needs, I believe that he created the church to do the same. I think that he created the church to bend to the needs of the world, to spread the love and the mercy of God worldwide. Saving the world does not mean subjugating it to a certain religious code or lifestyle. Saving the world means loving the world beyond its differences, worldviews, and especially its shortcomings. With that kind of love irrigating the desert of sin in the world, people would undoubtedly see a light that no darkness could overshadow and feel a strength that no evil could overpower. In Revelations, when Jesus returns, his bride is not going to be a religion. It will be the church, which is, in the words of Dr. Frank Machia, an ever-expanding diverse society that is allowed by grace to participate in the kingdom and the embrace of God. Human The mission of the church is patterned after the divine mission of Jesus. Jesus himself was incarnated in order to meet the needs of the world and save it. Incarnate means turned into or made human. The church is an incarnation of the gospel. When believers epitomize the gospel in real-world situations, 
That is how the gospel is made human. When the gospel is made human, it inspires and creates unity, not a uniform. The Apostle Peter referred to himself and other believers as Christians. But the Apostle Paul, long after his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, continued to refer to himself as a Jew, both religiously and culturally. I think the same Jesus was able to save both believers because he invented an organism called the church, not a mere organization. The organization or religion called Christianity is indelible, yes, but like the law, Christianity cannot save either. Christ saves. God revealed himself as Jesus, made human by his own spirit, and asked the world to receive his gospel into their cultures, views, and yes, their religions. Not so that they would be forced to surrender their individuality, but rather so that they could be individually adopted into his kingdom of love, grace, peace, and joy in the spirit. The only exchange that would be made would be our desire to save ourselves by our own religious merit, for our decision to be saved by God through his gracious spirit.